0: You may be seated. I'd invite you to uh, open your Bibles to our scripture passage this morning, taken from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. And if you don't have your own Bible, uh, please use one of the pew Bibles, the red pew Bibles, in the pew in front of you. I'll give you just a minute to find the scripture. Once again, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people." While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: If you're just joining us, as I know, we have both some people visiting for the Easter week and um, a few snowbirds that I noticed have flown back north here just in time for the spring. Um, We, for Lent, have been preaching through Um, what we kind of called the last words of Jesus, but just some excerpts from the end of the Gospel of Matthew leading up to the cross and Jesus' final week, and we are very near to the cross now. Would you pray with me as we look at this text? God and Father, I pray that you might help us and teach us through your word as we see both failure and um, fruit from your gospel in the lives of the people that we read about this morning and reflect on that you might teach us to follow after you more. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. So when we tell the story of our lives, we are always the heroes. Have you ever noticed that? That's just like a basic principle, right? So like, I'm always the good guy, I'm always the, you know, the justified person, I'm always the one on the side of right whenever I tell the story of my life. I was thinking about that um, because of this text, but I was thinking about that this last week I heard a story, an interview that was really interesting that made me reflect on this with this guy named Joe Papp, who's apparently a famous professional cyclist, which was news to me, Um, not really following professional cycling. But the interview was really interesting. So what you need to know is Joe Papp was this really like, apparently well-known professional cyclist, and in 2006, he tested positive for a bunch of performance-enhancing drugs, and over the next four years, it came out that he had not only been doing lots of performance-enhancing drugs, but he had been um, illegally importing them into the United States and selling them to almost 200 other professional cyclists who were also using them, and you hear that kind of on the face of it, and you think, wow, like, this sounds like a pretty sketchy guy, right? You know, I mean, he cheats at professional cycling and is an illegal drug dealer, you know, he sounds like a pretty bad dude. But it was so interesting hearing him tell the story of how he ended up there, right? So he... Um He was a professional cyclist for some years and had an injury and took a break for like five years and came back and when he came back he had worked really hard to kind of be back and he actually was cycling just as well as he had before in terms of his times but suddenly this is in the 90s everyone was doing better than he was and it became apparent that lots of people had started using performance enhancing drugs and he talks to his doctor about this and his doctor offers to prescribe him some um, EPOs is what he started using that increase your red blood cell count and he wrestles with it a little while but he keeps losing races, right? Not placing because um, he just can't compete. So he starts taking them and he starts doing better. And because of that, he gets on this cycling team. And he um On that team, some of the other cyclists are also using EPOs and other performance-enhancing drugs. And so he starts taking a few more, right, to help out the team and a few more. And soon he's on HGH and thyroid hormones and amphetamines and all kinds of stuff. And then the government shuts down the supply of some of these performance-enhancing drugs he's taking. And he and his teammates are facing the prospect of suddenly doing much worse and then he, a friend of his tells him that he can get him some of these drugs um, overseas from a factory that's still making them, but he'll have to import them illegally. And he does, and he starts giving them to his teammates too, and then he gets a reputation, and more and more people start contacting him, and soon he's in the situation that he was in when he got, um, when he got found out. And, and I run through that story because what struck me as I listened to this interview was that... Um, when you, pers- when you think about this guy at the end of the story, I feel like that guy's in a different place than me, right? You know, spending years lying and cheating at this thing that he loves, and then, you know, importing, I mean, dealing illegal drugs, right, to hundreds of people. Like, I'm like, that seems unrelatable, but when I heard him tell that story, what I felt was like, I get that, actually, right? When you hear it laid out in that process, I'm like, I understand how I could have gone Down that same road, right? How at each step I get the discouragement, I get the self-justification, I get the way I would tell my story to myself so that I would justify what I was doing and make those choices. And I was thinking about that because here in Matthew 26, right, we're just like two days before the cross and we meet these three different characters, these three different people in this story, right? There's Caiaphas, Who stands in for the religious leaders um, that Jesus encounters? And then there's this woman that we learn from the other Gospels is Mary, the sister of um, Martha and Lazarus. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrays Jesus. And clearly, we're meant to look at the stories and see a kind of contrast, right, between Caiaphas and Judas and Mary. But I think when I read these stories, it's easy for me to do kind of what I do with Joe Papp, which is to assume that Caiaphas and Judas, they're just, they're just different from me, right? They're the bad guys in this story. And Mary's the kind of the, the me character, right, in this story. But again, I don't think that that's true. And it certainly wouldn't have been obvious to the people at the time, right? We are all the heroes and good guys in our own stories. We all justify the things that we do. And Caiaphas and Judas had to be just the same as the rest of us in that, right? They had to tell their stories to themselves in ways that made them feel like the heroes. And so, what I want us to do is just kind of reflect on all three of these people and ask how would they have told themselves that story, right? How would they have thought about themselves? And how do we see ourselves in how each of them would have done it? What do we see about ourselves in them? And in what went wrong for Caiaphas and Judas? And in what was so good about Mary? So um, let's get started. Let's start with Caiaphas, all right? Caiaphas we meet right at the beginning of this story. And he is the high priest in Jerusalem. We read in verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So Caiaphas is the high priest, and in his palace, these people get together, and he's kind of standing in for all of them in this story. But we read in verse four, then, that they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So why? why? Why are they suddenly deciding to kill Jesus? I'm sure part of it has to do with what we've spent the last few weeks seeing, that Jesus goes off on these, like, kind of direct confrontations, preaching about why these religious leaders are misguided, and I'm sure they didn't like that. But still, I mean, people say bad things about me, and I don't plot their deaths, right? Or at least not this actively, <laughs> Um, but Matthew gives us a hint about what's going on in verse 5. Um, he says they're scheming to kill Jesus, but in Matthew we see them wanting to do it secretly, right? They say, but not during the festival, the festival of Passover is about to happen, or there may be a riot among the people. So they aren't just mad because they've been insulted by Jesus, right? You get this hint even in Matthew that they feel kind of threatened by him. They're worried about the people and the people's support for him. And remember, we want to understand the story that they're telling themselves, and, and that's actually start, the beginning of the key. So you see that in Matthew. John actually like, kind of expands on that when he talks about this event. In John 11, he talks about the chief priests and Caiaphas and the elders they sit down to meet, and they're worried about Jesus's popularity. They say in John 11, starting in 47, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So, these religious leaders, right, they've created this kind of delicate political balance in Israel. On the one hand, they have these Jewish revolutionaries who want to revolt against Rome, and they're keeping them in check. They're keeping them from starting this war of revolution. On the other hand, they have the Roman armies and governor, and they're kind of keeping them in check and trying to keep some freedoms and preserve things for Israel. And in that arrangement, it is also true that they're getting very powerful and wealthy, but that's not where they're focused, right? (laughs) Their focus is on the fact that they're kind of keeping these sides in check and that Jesus is a threat to that order. That if the people get too carried away with Jesus, worshiping him as the Messiah, that gig might be up and the Romans might come in force. And so it's not hard then to see what happens next. John tells us going on in John 11, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So it's better that one person, Jesus, die than that the whole nation perish, right? So we have to kill this guy. It's for the greater good. And now this story is a judgment on that way of thinking in general. And that's key because, again, you get it, right? Now you're like, oh, I understand how I could tell myself that story. But there's also something really important to notice about about what's happening there. um, Something we can easily miss. If you look at verse 47 and 48 in John, um, if you look at how they start, he says, before they they start worrying about him, they say, here is this man performing many signs. Right? These people, these religious leaders, one of the things that just always intrigues me about them, they've seen Jesus do all this incredible stuff throughout his ministry. And what's striking is they never really try to deny that Jesus does all these incredible miracles and things during his ministry. Um, in fact, they oftentimes use those, um, they use those miracles to bring charges against Jesus, right? Jesus miraculously heals somebody on the Sabbath, and they come enraged that Jesus would break the Sabbath and somehow just miss or don't comment on the fact that he miraculously healed this dude, right? They've been there for all of it. Um, they throw fits and get angry because Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, um, there. They, they've seen him raise the dead, right? If you go on in John in chapter 12, they actually add Lazarus, who Jesus just rose from the dead, to the plot, and they're like, well, we need to kill him too, because he's the evidence of Jesus doing this. And it, what boggles my mind is that somehow they can say, here's this man performing these miraculous signs, but never connect the dots and ask what that should mean to them. So how does that happen? Well, as I reflected on them, Here's at least one way I feel like it happens in my heart that's maybe part of it, right? So one of the things that I, one of my deepest idols is control. I want to be in control of things, right? A lot of you probably in different ways wrestle with that. I mean, it can be really obvious sometimes for us. There's these very direct ways we can try to control things, right? You know, the the person who, like, tries to, to bully and, you know, and threaten to get his way or the, the person who kind of, like, tries to, to nag and whine until people give in to her. Like, you can do that, but, but there's also a lot more subtle ways that we can try to be in control. And I feel like I often recognize those in my heart, like... Like there's just these power dynamics between people that you can constantly be kind of like thinking about and worrying about and trying to control. You know what I mean? Like like I can be vulnerable to somebody, right? Vulnerable to somebody, but it's it's on my terms, right? And it's, it's, it's carefully calculated to only be vulnerable enough to like get me a hearing without being vulnerable enough to actually make me vulnerable <laughs> to that person. You know what I'm talking about? That desire for control that I struggle with, that many of us struggle with, We have that desire because we want to be safe, right? We want to have security because things that we don't control feel dangerous. And in a sense, that's because they are dangerous, right? There's risk there when things are out of our control. A person or situation beyond my control is risky. And I think that's exactly how the religious leaders feel about Jesus, they have this perfectly controlled kind of balance in play, right? They, um, they have this house of cards built with all these different political factions and people all kind of in perfect balance, and they're trying to hold it all together, and then Jesus comes in and he just starts waving his arms around, right, and blowing on the house of cards, and, and they're freaked out because they're worried that the whole thing could come tumbling down. But the problem for them and for us with that kind of control is that it also blinds you to hope and possibility. People and situations that I am controlling might not be able to hurt me, but they also can't surprise me and bless me and turn out better than my plans and abilities. Often in wanting control, I don't step out in faith, right? Like, like, I notice this sometimes when I'm praying and I'm wrestling with that. Like, I'm praying for somebody who's sick, and there's all these things that I can pray, like that I pray that, um, that we might be a good support to them, and they might feel encouraged, and the doctor might be, you know, be wise in caring for them. And those are all good prayers, right? I want all of those things to happen. But what's striking is that there's no risk in any of those prayers, right? The risky prayer, and the one that I sometimes notice myself not praying, is that God would heal them, that he would intervene himself and make them better. I struggle sometimes to pray that because that's not something that I can control. And I can do that in all kinds of ways, right? I can, I can try to manage people so that they don't fail, but in doing it, I can do it in a way that stifles them so that there's no creativity or freedom. I can, I can avoid relationships with people, right? Because I'm worried that they might hurt me. I can shut them out, but I also miss the opportunity to be blessed by them experience friendship or a kindred spirit. I can avoid talking about what I believe with people because I don't want people to scorn me, but I will never see a soul meet Jesus and be transformed. The religious leaders are so worried about Rome and Israel and their, their precarious, carefully controlled political situation that they somehow miss the Messiah. And I think that I can do the same thing sometimes. I can miss the way Jesus shows up because it's beyond my plans and outside of my control. So that's Caiaphas, right? This man who's so invested in control that he's lost his ability to see the Messiah. And his story is all about that. But there's another person too, another guy who's also a part of betraying Jesus, and that is Judas Iscariot. We see him at the end of our text. And Judas is a complicated character. People have spent the last 2,000 years trying to psychoanalyze Judas, right, and figure out what his deal was. And I want to be careful as we talk about him, because it's not clear everything that went into um, betraying Jesus. But there are a few things I think, when we see him here in the New Testament, that we do pick up on. First, It just tells us that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples, right? Matthew puts it like this. He says, then, one of the twelve, that's how he identifies him, the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. Like, we have this picture, this, when we picture Judas, we tend to picture this, like, this evil-looking bad dude. You know what I mean? Or at least I do. Like, here's the Last Supper, right? Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, and there is Judas, Right? And you can just tell, like, when you look at him and the guys around him, he just looks sketchy. Here's a zoomed-in picture, right? You know, and he's, like, holding a money bag and, like, leaning back, glaring at Jesus instead of, like, smiling or listening or whatever. But that's not, that's not how Judas is portrayed in the Gospels, right? I mean, so he's one of the twelve, which means that, like the other disciples, he left his family and his job and everything he loved for three years and has been following Jesus. So then why does he betray him, right? How does that happen? Well, first, it almost certainly isn't about the money. I think sometimes people tell the story as if these 30 pieces of silver matter. But if you look at verse 15, Judas asked... What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And I'm sure the 30 pieces of silver are nice, right? But you'll notice Jesus go, or Judas goes to the chief priest and it's like, so let's say that I betrayed Jesus, how much money would you pay me? And that is not the words of somebody, right, who's in it for the money. That's it, the words of somebody who already has decided to betray Jesus. So why? Why does he do it? We start to see an answer within Mary's story, And so we're going to talk about that story more in a minute. But super cliff notes, she takes this expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus, the disciples don't like it. And so Matthew says, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Right? That sentiment, all the disciples kind of have it, but then when John tells the story, he emphasizes Judas is the one who gives voice to this, right? Right? He says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So Judas especially is objecting to this extravagant gift, right? And in the first place, like, his objection does kind of make sense, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but he's not lying that you could buy a lot of meals for a lot of poor people with this stuff that's worth a year's wages. But there's two problems with his objection. Jesus points out the first one to to Judas. He says, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Which is to say Christianity is a religion that's centered not on things we should do or things we say are true, but centered on Jesus, right? As we often say. That all the other stuff finds its place only with Jesus at the center, but Judas has lost sight of that fact, Jesus is saying, right? He's talking about a good thing, about helping the poor, but somehow he fails in that to appreciate the beauty of this woman's love and sacrifice for Jesus. He's still got the trappings of religion, but he's lost this sense that Jesus belongs at the center. And that becomes even clearer when we see a bit more about it in John. John shares one other interesting detail about Judas. He says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now watch out, because you can read that and think, aha, that Judas see, he was a bad dude. He isn't like the other disciples. But hold on, right? Because in the first place, um, in the first place, just, I... I could do that, right? Even though we read that and think, oh, no, you couldn't. I can think of all kinds of ways that Judas probably justified what he was doing, right? He's like, look at all this that I sacrificed for, you know, for Jesus, my home and my family and my job. Like, don't I deserve, you know, a little something? Or, look, we're helping all these other poor people, but we're poor too, right? We don't have a home. I mean, you know, shouldn't I have a little? Or or I'm just going to do it this once. There's all these ways that he could have done it. And more than that, John's point isn't that Judas isn't worse than the other disciples. They all do some pretty sinful and stupid stuff in the Gospels, right? In fact, in like one chapter, Peter is about to deny Jesus. So it's not like Judas is unique in doing bad things. John's point is that Judas's concern for the poor, even that good concern for the poor, had somehow gotten messed up, right? That he talked the talk of caring the poor, and seeing that he's the guy who's in charge of the money that they gave to them, probably at one point he was walking the walk, but somewhere along the line, it got complicated, right? And somehow he lost sight of the poor in his love for himself. And so then when Jesus makes clear that he isn't going to be a bit player in that self-serving agenda that Judas has ended up in, he ultimately betrays him and hands him over to be killed. Another way the stories that we tell ourselves... Um, that they can go wrong, is that they all skew towards being self-centered stories. Like we said, we're always the heroes, right? We're, we're the central players. Like, like what, when they make the movie of my life, right, like, I'm going to be Brad Pitt or Channing Tatum or whoever, right? And you all are going to be like those funny-looking character actors whose names I can't remember. I mean, just, just that's how every one of us, right, when we think about our lives, that's how it works, and, um, and it's so easy because of that for us to justify sin because we think I deserve this, right? Because we are the main characters, and so we should get this stuff. I mean, I have that little voice all the time in the back of my head. Don't you, don't, don't you deserve this thing? Shouldn't you be fulfilled, happy? Shouldn't you get what you've always wanted? Who's going to look out for you if you're not looking out for yourself? One of the hardest things about Christianity for me is that that voice is constantly going in the back of my head and scripture always comes back to it and says no. No. <laughs> because the Bible story is fundamentally a story focused on others outside of ourselves. Right? It takes Jesus. It says your example for life is Jesus. Jesus who gives up heavenly happiness and earthly fame and he allows himself to be beaten and unjustly accused and mocked and betrayed and murdered Jesus, who does all of that without ever looking out for his own happiness or comfort or health, he says, see that Jesus, and then take up your cross and follow after him. Now, There's more to be said about that than that, because that's a heavy call, right? And that call to self-sacrifice is actually more fulfilling and joy-giving, and there's, there's things underlie it, and we'll get to that in a minute. But for now, I just think that that's how I feel myself reflected in Jesus. I often tell myself these stories to justify my sin that are ultimately about serving myself. And I need to name that and to fight that if I'm going to be a follower of Christ. It's like, like let me give you just one example, right? In marriage, there are days that I come home and I'm tired, right? And maybe, I'm, I mean, I'm legitimately tired. It's been a hard day or I've dealt with some heavy stuff or it's been busy, right? But I come home and um, I kind of... Um, I just say to myself, like, okay, like, now it's my time to to live for myself, right? Now it's my time to get what I deserve. And so I flop down on the couch and turn on the TV, and the kids are wild, and Elizabeth is stressed, and I know, right, some part of me knows that if I went in there and, like, helped out, that it would be this huge blessing to her, but I don't. And it's because I'm telling myself those me, me, me stories I just mentioned, right? I deserve a break. I'm going to have some me time. I'm looking out for myself, And in some ways that's understandable, but it's also a lie, right? It's the lie that I think Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus, let rule his life. Because I don't exist for myself. That's one of the hardest but most important truths of Christianity. I don't exist for myself. I exist in part for my wife and my kids, I exist for my neighbors and for the church and ultimately for God's glory. Now that doesn't mean that I don't rest and enjoy life, right? Don't hear that in what I just said. There's an appropriate place for resting. But even though I might call what I'm doing in what I just described resting, I'm not, right? I'm just being selfish in those situations, right? I'm not resting wisely. I'm putting my needs and comforts over those of the people I'm supposed to love. And that's the opposite of the posture of Jesus, who so loved us that he gave himself up for us. All right. So that's Caiaphas and Judas, right? That's how I think both of them went wrong in the stories they told themselves. And I can see myself in both of those stories, right? But there's one more character, Mary. And she's the one who I find so encouraging in the middle of all of this. So if you look at verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany... In the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. That's the story right in its outline. Let me add a few details because the other Gospels I'll tell this story too. First, we know from earlier in Matthew that Bethany isn't just a random town. It's the town that Jesus had just been at before coming to Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. These siblings who were friends of Jesus and he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, One of his climactic miracles. And we learn from John 12 actually that Lazarus was there at the table with Jesus and Martha was in the kitchen helping serve and Mary was the woman who brought the jar of perfume and anointed Jesus. What's more, all of the accounts um, stress how expensive this perfume is. John says it's worth a year's wages. In Mark 14, he tells us it's 300 denarii, which if you translate it to modern money is like tens of thousands of dollars, right? This is this incredible offering. And Mary does it, and the disciples, like we said, aren't happy. Verse 8, when they saw this, they were indignant, why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. They're angry because this seems wasteful. And it is, in a sense, wasteful, right? They're not wrong, and this story is not meant to teach us to, to be wasteful exactly, right? Like, the application of the story is not for everyone to go buy really expensive perfume and pour it out on the ground, all right? You know, it's not like light our church service with burning $100 bills or something. It's appropriate to, to say, like, we should be wise with, you know, with money, but... um. But the key to understanding it lies in Jesus' answer. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. All right? First, a note about that. Um, That half a verse where Jesus says, The poor you will always have with you, is one of those verses that people often kind of trot out as an excuse to to just say that poverty is sort of inevitable and be fatalistic about it, right? They kind of say the poor will always have with you as a justification for not helping the poor. And that's not what that verse means in context. In fact, Jesus is really saying the opposite. He's saying, you'll always have the poor to help and you should be helping them, but you won't always have me. And that is what really makes the difference. Mary is doing this thing for Jesus directly. Jesus knows that there's not going to be a lot of chances to do this. As he says in verse 12, when she poured this perfume on, the, on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. So Jesus knows that he's headed for death and he welcomes this beautiful gesture of love. Here's the point of all of that, right? When I ask that same question of Mary, what story is Mary telling? What's she thinking about? something really striking happens. She isn't, in the first place, weighing pros and cons, right? She isn't calculating the value of the nard and the meals that it could buy for the poor and making some kind of careful economic decision, right? She isn't thinking about appearances. She isn't assessing what people think of her trying to control the situation. And she certainly isn't thinking about herself, really, right? I mean, given that this is either like... Her life savings that she's pouring out, or at least a substantial chunk of it, she's not doing this out of herself. Mary, I think, just seems to be thinking about Jesus, and she knows that she loves him, right? She loves to hear him teach. She loves to sit at his feet, loves him for defending her. When her sister Martha tries to tell her a woman's place is in the kitchen, and Jesus says that it's at his feet learning, loves him especially for raising her brother Lazarus from the dead, right? That's just happened. Her dear brother dies, and then Jesus does this unimaginable thing and says, Lazarus, come out. And he does, and now here he is, sitting at the table, right? Eating and laughing with the master. And so she takes her life savings and buys this jar of perfume, and and she brings it to Jesus and anoints him, weeping and giving thanks and pouring it onto his head and his feet. And what's beautiful about all of that, and what stands in such stark contrast to Judas and Caiaphas and often me is that she doesn't seem to be telling a story about herself at all. She's thinking about her Savior and what he has done and how incredible and wonderful he is and that's why her actions are above the disciples' reproach because they're all in this kind of self-serving calculus about themselves and the world, but she is just lost in love for Jesus. There's this little Pharisee in my heart. In all of our hearts, I think, when we think about Christianity that makes us start with the duties, right? With things to do and sins to stop and good deeds to perform. It's how almost everyone in our world views Christianity, right? If you ask them what Christianity is, they describe a set of moral do's and don'ts, right? You go to church on Sunday and you don't cuss at that guy going 50 in the fast lane on the interstate, And there are duties in Christianity. There are things to do, right? We've talked about a couple of them this morning. We're supposed to seek to trust in God and step out in faith. We're supposed to die to our selfish interests and live for others. But those duties are not where we start. Christianity always starts with Jesus and with what he has done. Because starting with Jesus is what empowers obedience. Mary gives this costly, beautiful offering to Jesus not because she's really like like hunkered down and thought about her duty. She does this because she has experienced his work and his welcome and he's taught her and he's loved her and he raised her brother from the dead. And that's why she does this. And it works the same way for us. That the reason we obey It's because God has served and loved and worked for us in Jesus, that Jesus gives us himself, and it's only after we receive him that we are then called to give ourselves to others. Starting with Jesus also helps me overcome those struggles we just mentioned with Judas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is all about control, right? And I can wrestle with always wanting to be in control, But here's the thing, just naming that and deciding that I need to stop controlling stuff doesn't actually work, right? Because like we said, I try to control things because I want safety and security, and those are real struggles, right? The world is scary, and really hard things can happen. Of course I want security in the face of that. The only way to release that control and step out in faith is to have my gaze fixed on one greater than me who is in control and who loves me. The more I think about myself and about my situations, the more I am going to try to control them, right? Whether I mean to or not. But the more my eyes are fixed on Jesus, right? On Jesus whose hands and feet are pierced in his love as he died for me. On that Jesus who sits on the throne in heaven and who rules over all things. The more that I look on that rather than on myself and my circumstances, the more I'm able to start to open my hands and give up the more I can trust and step into this world of risk. Because I'm doing that looking at Jesus, who is in far greater control of this world than I could ever imagine, even on my best day. Judas is all about looking out for himself, for living for himself and seeking his good. And we're called to be selfless, right? But again, we're never going to stop focusing on ourselves until we have this sense, um, this, this, this piece of knowing what Jesus has done for us. That he has provided righteousness for us. That he has provided new life. He has provided fellowship with the Father and fellowship with himself and friendship and relationship. And he's given us a new family in his church and he's given us a new purpose in his kingdom and he's given us an inheritance that will endure and cannot fade. And it is in seeing all of that and in recognizing how our needs are truly met in that that we are able to begin to die to our selfish interests because we know that all that we truly need is fulfilled in Jesus. And that frees us to stop seeking that stuff for ourselves and start serving others. So really then, what I'd encourage us to do as we think about all three of these stories is to seek, like Mary, to shift the central character of our stories from ourselves and to Jesus. Like we said at the beginning, we're all the heroes in our own stories. but, But fundamentally, what Christianity calls us to do is instead to start to make that hero Jesus instead, to make him the main character, to make him the one that it's about. I know of no better time to do this than the week leading up to Easter. I mean, this is it, right? The time that we celebrate the central acts of Jesus's life for us. His death for our sin, his resurrection for our new life. This is where Jesus takes on all of our guilt and all of the power of hell and all the darkness of death and all, all of the, the, the stuff that comes against us. He takes that on and he wins. So what I encourage you to do, and what I'm going to seek to do this week, is to spend a little bit of time thinking about that story. Not about what I should do because of it, right? Not about like, how it relates to me and how I'm succeeding to live and fail in the light of it. Um, But just just pour some coffee or whatever and and look out the window for a few minutes and reflect on what Jesus has done and the awesome power that rests in that. Because there is power there too to transform our stories and to transform our lives. So would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us um, all to die to ourselves, to die to our selfish interests, and to die to our need to control. But I pray that you would um, teach us to do that in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. He is our example, and he is our strength, and he is our salvation. pray all of these things in his name. Amen.